uh, a few weeks ago, our student ministry team took our young men on a camp. It was called Man Camp. And uh, they took them, as almost a couple hundred young men, they took them out to equip, exhort, and encourage them in the area of sexual temptation. And uh, as is their uh, procedure, is, is when the, they do camps, the student ministry team will come back. And those of us who have kids that go to these camps, after the third service at 12, they will meet over there. And before the kids get back, whether it's a girls' camp or boys' camp, uh, they'll meet with the parents and, and they'll download with us as parents, here's what we taught. Here's what was said. When your child asked you this, here's what you, we'd encourage you to ask them. And I, I mean, I just get so excited sitting there as a parent, grateful for those who've poured into my child and then who are taking time to help me walk with my child uh, through those, you know, discussions. Here's what we talked about at two in the morning. You know, here's what was on their minds. <clears throat> I want you to know that they didn't skirt any issues and they didn't lower any bars. Um, it was a long time ago that I was 16. But those struggles as a young man, lust, masturbation, pornography, how far do you go with a girl? What's inappropriate? You know, everyone is doing this. I want to be a part. I want to be in and everyone does this and so how do I all that temptation all that struggle it's I mean it's as vivid to me as this morning's news I don't think there's an adult in the room who would not agree with me that it is more difficult for our sons and daughters today than it was for us back then when you take the media Access and the culture and the models of leadership. They follow, you take all that together, I'm telling you, I don't think there's an adult in the room that would say, boy, it was tougher on me back then. Not, not in this area. I don't think, quite frankly, I'd have made it. I, I just don't think I'd have made it through had I had what's available uh, to most today. I'm 50 years old now, and I'd like to say that the temptations have changed, but that would be a lie. The, the struggles remain. What I can say is true is the temptations have expanded. They're just expanded. There are a lot more. And can I say this? For those of us who are adults in the room, we would say the, the cost for failure has risen exponentially. Such that to, to fail, to succumb, to give in, the collateral damage is just, it's just huge for you and I Today, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. As long as you and I are living in these bodies, these temptations, these, this, this temptation to choose my way or God's way will never end. I tell my son that all the time. And I don't tell him that to discourage him. I tell him that to prepare him for battle. Strap it on, son, because it doesn't get any easier. The good news is there is one only one who never succumbed to temptation, who never gave in, who never failed, who never chose his way over God's way. And because of his perfect obedience, we, we can live with hope. Listen, we can live with hope today. And I'll tell you what else we can live with. We can live with the confidence that one day all those temptations will be gone. For Jesus overcame them all and we'll enjoy an eternity with him, free from that pull. 
Our study through the Gospel of Luke brings us to the temptation of Jesus. If you have your Bible or your iPad or your phone, whatever you're tracking with here, we invite you to turn and get to Luke chapter 4. We're in that section that deals with his preparation for ministry. When Bill opens the Bible next week, he will be launching us into Jesus' ministry. So we've been in his birth and infancy, we're in, we've been in his preparation for ministry right now, and then we're going to launch into his public ministry. In this stage, the temptation is the final stage of preparation. Y'all, it is loaded with theological significance, with, with practical application. I'm going to teach it in a way this morning. I'm going, to be, I'm going to try to be very practical this morning, but not without the theological underpinnings as we walk through the text. I want you to start here, if you would, if you've got your Bibles there. Look at chapter 3, verse 38. You remember Michael last week took us through the baptism of Christ. And in that baptism, God the Father said... This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father affirmed the sonship of the Son. And then right after the baptism, 23 to 38, is a genealogy. And it's kind of odd. You know, you kind of go, boy, this is a high point. Jesus is baptized. Let's get on with it. And then all of a sudden Luke throws in a genealogy. And he traces the life of Christ all the way back. And I just want you to see this in verse 38. It, it, the genealogy ends with the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. If you think of it like this, geographically, Luke has returned us to the garden. Just that verse. He's just gone all the way back to son of Adam. The garden. Why would he take us back to the garden? Why connect us back there? Well, in part, uh, to remind us, to give us a clue, so to speak, that this Son of God, right? Three chapters, one, two, and three, all affirming. This is the Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. Here's a witness. Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. This Son of God is, in fact, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3. Remember we went through Genesis, Genesis 3? And in the curse, God said to the serpent that, that there, will be a, there will be a seed, a seed singular masculine, in other words, a man, a boy, born of a woman who will crush your head, devil, fatal blow, and you will bruise his heel. And so Luke's suddenly taking us back to the garden. And we're connected with Adam, our original parent. We'll talk about this in a moment. But we know what happened to Adam and Eve in that garden. This is the child of the woman who's come to crush the head of the serpent. It's also a reminder of this, okay? Before we read the text, it's a reminder that the last time the devil spoke to a sinless person, it didn't go well at all. All the advantages of sinlessness, all the advantages of a garden, all the provision that was there. And when the devil came and spoke, what happened? They fell. 
Well, with that, let's go through the passage. I'm going to take it a few verses at a time. I'm going to make some comments and some practical points of application. I'm going to ask you to consider some application for yourself. We'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me and I'll take the first two verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became very hungry. Uh, Note, first of all, two times in that first verse, it mentions the Holy Spirit. Mark, when we read his gospel, says the Spirit impelled. It's like, like pushed, led, guided, made Jesus go into the wilderness. And so the first thing I want to step back and notice in the text is... Excuse me. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now, now you got to think, think about that. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness? Is that what the Holy Spirit does? I've got a picture here of a slide when we were in Israel last year. Here's a picture of the, the, the wilderness as it is in just east of the Dead Sea. It, this, is, this is where we believe Jesus experienced these temptations. And when you look at it, it is exactly what you see. It's dead. It's void of life. There is no water there. It's a place of hardship and suffering and pain. The Jews called it the place of devastation. And indeed, you know, think of it in this, you know, metaphorically, the wilderness is that place where you go to be destroyed The Holy Spirit led the Son into the wilderness? Yes. I want you to know that the Spirit didn't just lead him there, drop him off and say, I'll be back in 40 days to help out when it really counts. Not at all. The the, the wording here is led around. All 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus is led around by the Spirit as he's being tempted by the devil. So when we read these three temptations that we'll go through in a moment, understand that these are three on the tail end of multiple temptations. It's not that he went there, got hungry, got good and weak, got ready to die and said, now tempt me. No, he was tempted the whole time. And so now... The, the, the devil comes back at this great point of vulnerability and tempts him with these three. Third point I'd want you to consider when you see this wilderness geography and what the Spirit does. It was the Father's will that his son go hungry. It was the Father's will that his beloved son, in whom he's well pleased, go hungry. I think it seems... That, that uh, most people spend a lifetime trying to avoid hunger. Most people spend a lifetime wanting to avoid the wilderness. That place where there's not enough. That place where there's lack. That place where there's suffering. That place where there's hardship. It's like everyone, that's where you don't want to go. And yet we open the text up and what do we see? The Holy Spirit led him there. Oh my God, the Father allowed him to be hungry. And I say this, you all, too. Encourage us to make room in our theology, okay, to understand that the fullness of the Spirit and need, the fullness of the Spirit and want, 
lack, hunger are not incompatible. As if you're full of the Spirit, then you're not going to have all this stuff. No, no. The fullness of the Spirit and need and suffering are compatible. I'm going to tell you something. New Testament writers had no trouble with this. And so you read Paul when he writes the Philippians. He says, for to you it's... For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That, I, I don't like that verse because I, I like the first part. It's been granted. Yes, what a gift. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And it's been granted, by the way, for you to suffer. No, thank you. Well, not the New Testament writers. So that's been granted to you as well. We'll see why in a moment. I just want to say an unmet need or lack is not incompatible with the spirit-filled life. In fact, can I say this? It may be a surer sign of the spirit's fullness than abundance. Let me ask you. How full of the spirit was Jesus? And how much did the man own in this world? How much did he have? How did his relationship... Do you see how... He was full of the Spirit. Let me ask you a question for, for your own application. So what? You know, if you're a guest here, we always say, so what? If this is true, what does it mean? How do we apply it? Here's a so what. Is there room in your theology, in your view of God's goodness and providence, for God to allow his own kids to go hungry, to have need? Is there room in your theology... For that kind of a God? For a God who would actually lead you into the wilderness? Well, it's very clear. He did this with his own son. And the New Testament is clear. He does it with all who follow him. Let's go through the provision or the, the temptations. Verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to give you three words for each temptation. I think just to kind of help us get a handle on them. Here's the first temptation, verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. This first temptation, if you would, if you're taking notes or just lock it in your head, it's about provision. I'm going to give you three P words, you know, just to help you remember. Provision. That's what this temptation is about, provision. And I want you to understand the devil has never been confused about the identity of Christ. And so when we read here, the devil comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, if you are, if you are is a first class condition in the Greek. It means literally, since you are. It's not a question. He's not... The devil's not wondering if Jesus is. And the devil is not trying to get Jesus to wonder who he is. There's just no question. There's never been in doubt. The devil is saying, since you are the son of God, do this. Think about the gospels and every time Jesus comes across a demon. Every time he comes across someone who's, who's possessed by a demon. What do the demons always say to Jesus when they see him. Everyone around Jesus is confused about who Jesus is. They don't know who he is. But when he comes to a devil or a demon, what do the demons always say? You're the son of God. 
Leave us alone. Every time. They're not confused. And what does Jesus always say? Shut up. You know, it's not my time. You Be quiet. I don't want you saying that. And I say that to remind us the devil here is not confused and never has been confused about the identity of Christ. Since you are the Son of God, do this. The temptation was to meet a legitimate need illegitimately. It was the temptation. I mean, God made us as people who need food to eat. Hunger is a legitimate need. Turn it to bread and eat. Legitimate need. But he tempts him to meet it illegitimately. To provide for himself rather than trusting his father to provide. We might say this. Wait a minute. He had every right to do that. And when we say that, what we betray is our own bent toward independence. And that's us and our fallenness. We're bent toward independence. Please understand, Jesus, however, is committed to dependence. And we read the Gospels and it says, Jesus says, I never do anything that I don't see my Father telling me to do or my Father doing. Not, not one thing, Jesus, nothing. Well, why'd you do that, Jesus? Because my Father told me to do it. I live in utter dependence upon my Father. And the devil comes to Jesus and says, you're hungry. In fact, God's got you hungry. Why don't you step out from his provision and make your own provision? That was the temptation. And Jesus doesn't do it. If he, if he did, think about it this way. If he chose to feed himself in that moment... He could not feed you and I later. He would not be the bread of life that feeds the lost sheep. And it's interesting to me as well. I, I don't know how this works, but do you understand when Jesus, when this, Satan tempted him to remove himself from dependence on the Father and act on his own to provide, do you understand when Jesus said, no, I won't turn that stone to bread, he actually ate something. Because in John 4, 4, Jesus tells his disciples, you guys, I've got food that you don't even know about. In fact, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so in his obedience, I'm not, I'm not taking away the fact that he's physically hungry and it's real, but in his obedience, he was fed. And it tells us this, life in God's economy is more than a heartbeat or a brainwave. Gang, we've got we've to redefine life and define it how Jesus defines life, if we're going to understand this. Life is to be in dependent relationship with the Father. That, men and women, is L-I-F-E. That is life. God told Adam and Eve, you remember this in Genesis? If you eat from that tree, you're going to tree, you're going to die. They ate from the tree and lived 900 years. What's up with that? Well, obviously, we've got two different definitions of life. Because when they ate from the tree, according to God, they died. What happened? They were removed from God's presence. That is death. To be out of relationship with God is to be dead. That's death. To be in relationship with God, that's life. 
In fact, this is kind of, this is hard for me to get my brain around. Life is so much more than this physical life. I mean, I'm not diminishing that we have life and we're breathing. And this is, this is, you know what I'm, you understand what I'm saying, that we live, we have life. But true life is so much more than what you and I are experiencing right now. The Bible tells us that we won't actually live until we, what? Until we die. Can you believe that? That's the gospel. We won't really live till we die. Let me ask you to consider this, so what? Is there something going on in your life right now, a real need, an, an unmet need, a problem unresolved, where you are tempted, there's, there's, this, there's, there's the temptation before you to declare your independence and take care of this thing on your own versus remaining submitted to God the Father, even in your need. You see what I'm saying? Even in that need. Jesus is still hungry physically, but he remained dependent on the Father. Why? Because this is life, even with an unmet need. Provision, that's the first temptation. The second one, verses 5 to 8, and he led him up. This is the devil led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and this glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The second temptation, there's provision. The second one has to do, another P word, with path. Path. So we got provision and path. When I say path, be thinking about the path that God has for us. The path to life. First thing to note in this temptation is that the devil is always offering that which is not his to give. Eat of this tree. It wasn't even his tree to offer to them in the garden. Eat of this tree. Here, I'm going to give you this kingdom. It, and, and we have a a bit of a challenge here, you go, well, wait a minute, doesn't Paul say, you know, he's the ruler of this world? Um, the New Testament speaks of his, his, his uh, ruling of the kingdoms of the world. Well, keep this in mind. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And the devil is under the providence of God. And yes, the devil is the ruler, small r. He influences all that's going on in the world. He, he, he's got reign in the world in the sense that he influences and shapes all the world. But please know, he doesn't own it. If he owned it, then that means God doesn't own it. God owns it. So the devil, he it's not his to give. Now, please note as well that Jesus has been promised the kingdom and domain. Jesus, this, this, Jesus knows it's his to give, but it's for God to give to him, not the devil. I want you to notice as well in Jesus' answer, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him, on, him only. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus clearly adds, and serve him, where does the devil say, just worship me. What does Jesus know? Jesus knows that that which you worship, you serve. That which you worship, you're enslaved to. So when the devil said, just worship me now, he knew that that wasn't just, I'm going to praise you, Jesus, or I'm going to declare this allegiance. He's, it meant he was going to submit to the devil and serve the devil and be a bond slave to the devil. For that which you worship, you serve. And, and we know this intuitively. We, we know that boy, if, we, if, if we worship the God of image, don't you know, you will spend a lifetime like a gerbil on a treadmill 
Trying to satisfy all you can do to have the right image. And it'll never be enough. But you're a slave to it because you're serving the God of image. If you serve the God of success or achievement, accomplishment, you'll climb the ladder. And you will do the craziest things. You will actually throw away things that in a sane moment you would never throw away. But when you're serving the God of achievement and and gain, then you climb the ladder and you will throw away your family. You, you, in a sane moment, you'd never do it. But climbing the ladder, you will. You'll throw away your reputation. Why? So you can climb higher and higher and higher. Because why? Because you're a slave to that which you worship. And Jesus says we're to worship and serve the God, God only. The provision is the temptation and the path. And in the path, this third point. The path the Father set before the Son is to the cross... And the path that the devil offers will bypass the cross. So when the devil says, worship me and I'll give you all this. Jesus knows he's going to get it all. It's his. But it won't come from worshiping the devil. It will come through hanging on a cross. In other words, the path to life is a path of what? Humility, sorrow, death suffering, and the cross. That's the path. You recall when Peter makes his great confession? You remember when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter comes out, he's brilliant. You know, the spirit leads him. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and when, when, when he says that, Jesus says, you're right. And Jesus says, and by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem where I will suffer. I will be beaten And I will be killed. And when Jesus said that, the text is so funny, I read it even again this morning. It says, Peter pulled him aside. Jesus, come here. Can I talk to you privately? You're my Lord, and that will never happen to my Lord. And what did Jesus say? Oh, this hurts. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Jesus knows that the path to life is the cross. And he would have anything that would attempt to keep him from the cross. Who was behind it? Satan. This is a harsh statement, but I think it's demonic to think that there is life. Apart from death. So that's the way the devil thinks. That's why I say that. To think that the path to life can avoid the cross. It didn't for Jesus and men and women. It doesn't for you and I. Let me ask you this. So what? For you right now. Can I ask you this? Is there a temptation in your life? Right right now. Right where you're living. I don't know who I'm speaking to. But is there a temptation around you? It's got your heart and your mind. Where you have a path that's going to require death and suffering. And you have a path that can avoid it. Are you, are you at that place where you're tempted to choose the one? Whew, it's easier. Versus the one that's, that's going to require death. Can I tell you, this is the one to life and this is the one to death. 
temptation around provision, around path. And then this last temptation, I'm going to give you this word, promise. This last temptation has to do with the nature of promise and living as people of promise. Look at verses 9 to 12. And he led him to Jerusalem. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now Jesus has said, you know, it is written, it is written. So it's very interesting that the devil is now going to say, Okay, I I can play that game. (laughs) By the way, it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Three things out of this section. Please note, it's not enough to quote scripture. You've got to believe it. May I say to all of us, the devil knows more Bible than all of us combined and then some. And he doesn't believe one word of it. And so to, to say, to know the Bible, but not to believe it is terribly dangerous. Which, by the way, puts everyone in this room and in this community of faith in a very precarious place. For if you sit here week after week, year after year, and you can say, I know my Bible, but you don't believe it, that is a very dangerous place to live. You can know your Bible and miss God profoundly. Let me say this as well. I, I believe the temptation here is to, he's, he's asking, he's telling, he's in, in inviting Jesus to step out of a life of promise. In other words, living life by the promise of God. And he's, he's saying, you know, you know, test God to see if his promise is worth trusting. But the truth is, is that to live by promise is to trust God's character when we can't understand God's actions. That's what it means to live by promise. We live by the promises of God in light of the promises of God, not always by the actions that are around us in the sense that these actions are, you know, I'm hungry, this can't be good, this can't be God, I'm going to take care of myself. No, 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 we live by the promise that God said, I will provide for you. It's interesting, you know, it's Deuteronomy where all three of these answers from Jesus come from. Read it, Deuteronomy 6 to 8, fascinating. Because it's all about the wilderness and how they blew it and failed to trust God in all of these areas. Provision, path, and promise. They blew it and they missed it. In Exodus 17, 7, this quote is referring to this incident. You don't need to turn there, but they, had, they were in the wilderness. They had no water. And they got really ticked off. And they wanted to kill Moses. You brought us out here. We're going to die. Moses says, God, what am I going to do? They're going to stone me. And he goes and hits the rock and they get water. And they tested God at Massa is what it says. They tested him. And it's interesting. Listen to the phrase it's used. It says, they tested God and said. Here's what they said. Is the Lord among us or not? That, that was the phrase. I mean, it's kind of an ugly phrase, really. When you think, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, our circumstances tell me God's nowhere to be found. And God, if you are here, then do something so that I know you're here and then I'll trust you. I mean, is the Lord among us or not? I say not. How about you? Not, not, not. Yeah, let's get God to do something. See, they wouldn't live by promise. By the, the, that God promised you know, they, they didn't have it yet, but God promised. And are, am I going to live by the promise 
or by this lack of water or Jesus by this lack of food. I'm going to live by the promise. Is there a circumstance, a situation? Is there some, something going on in your life right now where you are tempted to say, you're, it's, it's almost coming on you. I mean, is the Lord among us or not? Are, are, are you tempted to put God to the test? Say, God, you need to do something before I'm going to trust you. You need to show, you need to show your faithful before I trust you. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness in word and deed. The last verse, 13, is a sober reminder Let me read it. It says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. That's spooky. I'll say it this way. Temptation will pass, but it'll come again. (laughs) It'll be back. And it'll be back, it says, at an opportune time. I say it this way. The devil is not omnipresent. You know, the devil can't be everywhere at one time. He can't. The devil is not omnipresent, but he is opportunistic. There are certain times and circumstances and things that he knows when he can come at you and what he can come at you with when you're more vulnerable, more susceptible, less likely to put up resistance. He knows that about you. I hate coconut. I hate blue cheese and I hate mashed potatoes. And the devil never comes at me with those things on the menu. Michelle Arms has offered that, but that's another story. But the devil never comes at me with those things. I love to be right. I really like being in control. And I am very independent. And he knows that about me. And that's what's on the menu when he comes to me. And it's at certain times he'll come. When he knows I'm, I'm less likely to resist. Now, in light of that, just a so what here. Do you know that about yourself? Because the enemy of your soul does. Do you know those opportune moments that he'll take? Well, let me close with this. Number one, it's not a sin to be tempted. Please keep that in mind. Jesus was tempted, he never sinned. So it's not a sin to be tempted. Number two, we have what Jesus had to resist temptation. Men and women, Jesus in the wilderness with none of the benefits of the garden, by the way, okay? But in the wilderness had the spirit of God and the word of God and resisted the evil one. Men and women, we have The spirit of God, if we placed our faith in Christ, and the word of God. There's nothing else, quote, needed to resist temptation. And then let me say this. Other than what God has already spoken, there's really nothing to say to the devil. Can I say it this way? This is the English translation, but when you count the words. The devil uses 96 words to tempt. And Jesus only responds with 38. Now, I mean, that can be silly in a sense, but I think it's indicative of the fact there's nothing to say to a fool. That's what Proverbs says. And so Jesus does not argue with the devil, does not say, well, let me explain it this way. He just says, this is what it says. Enough. We don't argue with the devil. You don't argue with the fool.